Good morning, church. If you have not already, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and to find Judges chapter 8. We're going to begin reading there in just a moment, verse 22. Judges chapter 8, verse 22. Lord willing, I'll say more about this a little bit later in the message, but yesterday and today were one of those days, a couple of those days where I just felt completely oppressed by the enemy. Has that ever happened to you? And just just feeling that pressure, feeling that weight, and and I've tried to express it, but but one of the things that that the Lord is teaching me and I always feel like I'm a slow learner. Maybe you can identify with that. But one of the things that I feel he's teaching me more and more is that what we do here on Sunday morning is truly all about him. We leave services sometimes and we think, well, I got something out of that sermon or I got something out of that service and, or I didn't. But the question we ought to ask ourselves is, did he get anything out of that service? Did he get more of us? Greater surrender in our heart? Did he receive worship? Was he praised? And it's become more important than ever for me that when I come and I share God's word that I'm giving you more than a Bible lesson and we need Bible lessons but that I'm coming to you with a very clear sense that God has something to say to his church And so I felt the pressure yesterday and today, and, and our deacons meet on the third Sunday of each month. Now, they, they typically meet weekly to pray on Sunday mornings, and they pray for this service. They pray for you, and they pray for me, and they pray for the staff. And then on those third Sunday mornings of each month, they gather together, and typically uh, they'll before as part of our meeting process one of the things I do is they'll put me in the middle of the room if the staff are there they'll pray for them as well and, and this morning they did that they prayed for me I tell you what I love the men who are our deacons and I'm thankful for them and what a blessing they are to me and I, I hope you know what a blessing they are to our church and they lay hands on me and they prayed not only for me, they prayed for our, our other pastors and our staff. And that weight that was on me for two days lifted. <laughs> and I'm, I'm ready to talk to you about what God has said. There's some things that don't change until we pray together. There are some things that will not change until we pray together. And so I want to encourage you to pray for one another. Look for opportunities to pray together. If you're not in a prayer group, 
find a prayer group. Let your Bible study group pray. We need to pray together. The title of this morning's message is Walking with the King. Walking with the King. Throughout the scripture, walking with God is one of the primary ways that we understand our relationship with him. And that, I hope, is very encouraging to you because he's not sitting on some distant throne in a faraway place outside of the universe, billions and billions and billions of light years away, but, but he is near and he is near us and the picture that the scripture gives is that he wants to walk with us, that he does walk with us. Beginning in the Garden of Eden and in Genesis 3 where God is walking through the garden in the cool of the day and he calls out, Adam, where are you? In Genesis 5, it describes a man named Enoch. He was the father of Methuselah. And Enoch, it says, walked with God. And he walked with God for several hundred years, and then God took him. And it says in Hebrews, when it talks about Enoch, in the chapter that describes great men and women of faith who had great faith, It says that this happened because Enoch pleased God. And right after that it says that it's impossible to please God without faith. And so Enoch believed God was there and he walked with God. We've been talking about Gideon for a couple of weeks. We have seen how God came into Gideon's life and spoke to Gideon and began to use Gideon to deliver the nation of Israel once again from oppression. That oppression was there because of their own choices, because they had rejected God, they had not walked with God, and that was their history, and they did it over and over again. When God brought the pressure, they would repent, and they would cry out to God. And they did it again in this particular instance, and God sent a prophet to them. He didn't send a deliverer right away. You remember that? And that prophet said, he said, he said, why don't you hear my voice? He begins to raise up Gideon. He speaks to Gideon, and, and then he uses Gideon in this powerful way, in a, in a supernatural way, to deliver the nation. And, and we have seen Gideon express great faith in God in his initial journey with God. But then it changes. And when you come to chapter 8 of Judges, he goes into a spiritual tailspin. And everything changes. I want you to look at verse 22 of chapter 8. And after the battles were over, after the victories had been won, and Gideon began to exhibit some behavior that was not becoming of a man of God, and we'll look at that shortly. But after all of that, we come to verse 22, and this is what God's word says. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Right answer. But then look at what happens next. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, 
for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites, the, the, the people that had been conquered used these gold earrings. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That is a lot of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks. This is a royal treasury. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. This ephod was the only other time that it's described in Scripture was back during the time of the Exodus when God gave directions for how the high priest, what he was supposed to wear. And the ephod was a, a breast plate, kind of a garment, and it contained, as best as scholars understand, it contained a couple of pockets, and in it were called these two objects, probably stones, were called the umim and the thumim, or the umim or thumim, however you want to say it. And and if you go back and you read, it's, I believe it's in Exodus 28, the description of the, these things, Aaron wore this when he went into the presence of God, and in doing that, he bore the decisions that the people of God needed from God. And when you go to other passages like 1 Samuel 14 and other parts of the Scripture, what you discover is that somehow these objects were used to make decisions. Most scholars believe that one was white and the other one was black. One represented light, the other represented darkness. One represented yes, the other represented no. And they had a way, when they were praying about a decision, of, of using these objects almost like we would use dice and casting them out and getting an answer from the Lord. And so this man who once had set out a fleece to see if God was truly speaking to him. You remember that? He set out a fleece on, on dry ground and he said, Lord, if you're the one speaking, let the fleece get wet and let the ground be dry in the morning. And then he reversed it out. And God spoke to him through that. And at that time, it was not a testing of God. It was doubts that Gideon had about himself and he wanted to be absolutely sure that it was God leading him to lead the armies of Israel against the enemy. And this man who was once so careful to find out what God wanted him to do, now after the victory, has set up a high priestly like garment in his hometown and by all appearances was acting like a judge, a, a king who was making decisions for people, telling them what God wanted them to do. And, and regardless of what, what the full story, what we do know is that the people, it says, played the harlot, they prostituted themselves with this thing, meaning that instead of being faithful to God, they were unfaithful to God, and it became a snare or a trap for Gideon and his family. And it wasn't a physical trap, it was a spiritual trap, and it was a trap of the enemy. 
And if we understand that these stories in the Old Testament are written for our admonition, as Paul said, as a warning to us, something that we need to be thinking about, something we need to be conscious of, I think it's a tremendous statement to you and me that here is a man who is sensitive to God, walking with God, cares very much about what God thinks and what God is saying, who gets past the greatest moment of his life where God uses him and he exercises great faith in this experience, can suddenly fall so far away from God. And this man who started so well ends not so much, not so well. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to you, as your people, we come desperately needing to hear a word from you this morning. We need to know your heart. We need to know the things that you care about that's happening to us, and things that are happening in our hearts and in our minds. And so, Holy Spirit, I need you, I need your help to speak what you want spoken. And then, Father, we as your people, we need your supernatural opening up of our ears, our spiritual ears and our eyes to understand your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with Gideon, some things happened that had not happened before and with the other judges in, that we've studied so far. When, when we saw Othniel, this was a man faithful all the way through. When we saw Deborah and Barak, these were, this was a woman and a man of God who were faithful all the way through. But when we come to Gideon, as the book of Judges, those of you who have already begun to read ahead and have studied it, you see that it's just a constant downward spiral. Each circumstance seems to be worse than the previous one. Not only are the people falling further and further away from God, but the people that God uses themselves are less than stellar in their morals. They, they are not the kind of people that you would hold up as models, as examples. But God is faithful to his people. The great message in the book of Judges is that even though his people were unfaithful, he was faithful. Even though that they were, they were not righteous, they were not worthy, they were not deserving, God gave them grace. And when they cried out to him, he came to them. And so this morning, if you feel like you're that kind of a person and you have failed and you have fallen and you have failed and you have fallen and you think there's no hope for you, you just need to read this book because God, he, he worked to bring those people back to himself. And if you're sitting here this morning, God is at work and you may have questions about your worthiness and, and all the mistakes that you have made, but God has not given up on you. And he is at work right now to bring you to himself, if that's who you are. That's what you're dealing with. So God's grace is so evident in this book. Uh, these are not people I would hold up to you and say, uh, here are some people to imitate. These are people <laughs> that show us the grace of God. And that's what we need to understand. Well, I think there are very, very clear and important lessons that you and I can get from watching Gideon, who began a walk with God and then completely lost his walk with God. And we can learn from him. So this morning I want to talk first about Gideon's walk with God. Gideon's walk with God. 
When the fighting was done, Gideon is approached by the people and they ask him to be the king. And he says the right things. Only God is going to rule over you. Only God can do that. He's the only one you need. He says the right things. But then he turns right around and begins to act like a king. So he says one thing. He, he talks the talk, but he's not walking the walk. You see that? He says, I'm not going to be your king. And he turns around and does everything a king would do. And, and you and I can be like that if we're not careful, especially if you've been a Christian a long time. You know all the right answers. You know all the Sunday school answers to all the questions that somebody might ask you about how to have a walk with God and what it means to have a walk with God. But you're talking. And you know you're just talking because in daily life, you're not walking with him. And so on one hand, you say, I'm not the king, but then you're living like the king, like you're in charge. And, and we have fallen into the trap of Gideon. Well, his walk wasn't there anymore. And as you go through chapter 8, you see his walk just erodes. And, and something has changed in Gideon's heart. Something has shifted. Something has gone very wrong. Now, Gideon began well, didn't he? He begins when this angel of the Lord appears to him, and they have this incredible conversation, and God is saying to him, you may think that you're just a frady cat sitting here in the wine press threshing out the wheat so you can hide from the Midianites who are coming and taking away all your stuff. But the truth about you is that I look at you, Gideon, and you are a mighty man of valor. And they have this incredible conversation, and the end result of it is Gideon's thinking that God is here, the idols are here, Baal's here, Asherah's here, all these gods are all the same, and how do I know that I can trust this God? So he says, hey, can you just... He puts God on hold. You remember that? He, he says, can you just wait right here a minute? I'm going to go make an offering. And he goes and prepares this offering. He brings it out, puts it on a rock according to the angel's direction. And he touches it with his staff, the angel of the Lord does, and the thing just burns up. Just burns up. And we realize at that moment that Gideon understands that he's not dealing with just a little God like all the other gods. He's dealing with Yahweh. He's dealing with the one true God. This is the God that his fathers and his grandfathers had told him about. And he is absolutely in awe. And he says, I have seen the Lord. Uh, something terrible is going to happen to me. And that's when God began to speak to him directly. The angel of the Lord had disappeared. And in the process of this, he built an altar to the Lord after this experience. He built an altar to the Lord, and it reflects the condition of his heart. And many of us have been right where Gideon is. We have had an encounter with God. We encountered the gospel. We heard about the cross of Jesus, that he died for our sins, carried our sins away, and that when I trusted him, he would come in and change my life. And the Holy Spirit made that real to you and me, and, and he came into our life when we trusted him, and we built an altar to the Lord in our heart. But then what God says next to Gideon is so instructional. He says, now the next thing I want you to do is go and tell, tear down your father's altar to Baal. You've got to tear down the altar to the false gods. You see, God won't let you have two altars in your heart. He won't let you have two of them. There can only be one. And so he does that. He does it by night. He grabs ten of his servants and they, they tear down the altar to Baal. The next morning, the people in the town, they want to kill him. And his dad speaks up and says, look, Baal's 
Baal needs to put on his, get his man card out, put on his big boy pants. He can take care of himself. If, if my son needs to be punished, Baal can do it on his own. Let's just see what Baal does. And, and nothing happened. And the next thing we know is that the Bible tells us that the, the Spirit of God came and clothed himself with Gideon. Do you remember that? Which means that Gideon was on the outside and the Spirit was on the inside. And he, he issues a call and 32,000 people come together and they form a massive army. And God begins to speak again to Gideon. And he says, look, Gideon, there's too many of these people. Your army's too big. Now, they're going up against an army of 135,000. I don't think 32,000 is too big. But God said it was too big because, because when they won the battles, God's concern was that the people of Israel would take the glory for themselves. So, so they go through this process of filtering out those who are afraid and then filtering out those that God has not chosen. And when the process is over, all Gideon's got left are 300 men to go after an army of 135,000. And God did it. God gave him the victory. God did the unspeakable. No one could have imagined that in that moment that God would have delivered in such a powerful way. Gideon is later in Hebrews 11 spoken of as a great man of faith. Don't you think it took faith to trust God to go up against an army of 135,000 with just 300? He's walking with God, he's listening to God, and here's what I want you to see about walking with God at this moment in Gideon's life. God is very detailed. There is no confusion. God is speaking. Gideon understands that it's God speaking. He hears, he understands, he comprehends, he obeys. And so in his walk with God, he is modeling something that you and I are supposed to understand is supposed to be the norm for the child of God. No confusion. We're not to live a life of doubt. We're called to live a life of faith, believing, trusting, listening, recognizing, not just once in a while, not just with major decisions in our life, not just on Sunday mornings, but every moment of the day, walking with the King, walking, trusting in Him, believing that He's there, believing that He's never abandoned you, just like He promised. He's never left you alone. Not for one second. So what happened to Gideon's walk with God? I want to share with you just three things. We could talk about this a long time. But in praying about this, these were three things I think several of you need to know that derailed Gideon's walk with God. The first thing was distraction. Distraction. In chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, in the first part of chapter 8, where everything goes south, we have this incident where in the midst of the victory, one of the tribes comes to Gideon and complains. Why did you not call us? Why did you leave us out of the victory? Why did you ignore us? Why did you 
would you snub us? And they're offended. The exact question was, why have you done this to us? And what's interesting is how Gideon responds. He's very diplomatic in human terms. He says, well, look, you know, nothing, well, everything I've done, nothing compares to what you've done. Uh, you captured these two princes of the Midianites. You, you, guys are, you guys are glorious. You guys have done a wonderful thing. But what's interesting is what he doesn't say. The people had come and said, of Ephraim said, why have you done this to us? He responds, what have I done now in comparison with you? But the point is, is he left God out of it. Why didn't he call the Ephraimites? Why didn't he call them? Because God said, I just want these 300. Because God said, when this happens, I want everybody who hears about this battle to know that it was humanly impossible for there to be a victory with 300 people against 135,000. But he didn't say a word about that. My conviction, my belief is that Gideon was distracted at that moment. And I don't know anything that's more subtle, more sinister, more dangerous to your walk with God than distraction. The enemy will do everything he can to distract you from simple devotion to Jesus Christ. It may be busyness in your workplace. It may be hiccups and things in your life, things that happen in your home. Sometimes they're big things, scary things that come into your life, things that happen, disappointments, rough patches, whatever you want to call them. And, and all these things can work together and distract you from God and take your eyes off of the God of glory the God who can defeat anyone, anytime, any problem that you face. Take our eyes off of the one who has the answers, who is the answer. Take our eyes off of him and put it on whatever's distracting us. And one of the great disciplines that you and I have to forge if we're going to walk with God is the ability to recognize the things that are happening around us, but then to turn and bring those things to the Lord. You know, he never, never, never asked you to carry your burdens If you go read the scripture, every time that someone's described as having a burden, the, the teaching of scripture is that we're to take that burden and we are to cast it at the feet of God. You were not designed to carry your problems. You were not designed to manage your problems. You were not designed to cope with your problems. You were designed to take your problems and cast them onto the Lord because he cares for you. And that is, that is a mental exercise, that is an emotional exercise, but it is a real exercise. And if you don't do that, you're going to be distracted by every single thing that goes wrong in your life. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? More problems? Rest. And the word weary there in, in Matthew 11 Come to me, all you who are weary. That's people who are just worn out from their own activity, worn out from handling their own troubles, worn out from handling all their own difficulties. Come to me, people who have worn themselves out. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Heavy laden is all that stuff that everybody else puts on top of you. All the stuff that people put into your life holds you responsible for. Expectations that people put on you. He says, come to me, all you who are weary, worn out, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So God never expects you to carry all that stuff. Distractions. Second thing that happens to Gideon is fatigue. When you go on to read verses 4 through 9, 
he crosses over into the, the eastern section of Israel, the area beyond the Jordan. And he comes up on two towns. One is called Succoth. The other one is called Penuel or Peniel, depending on how it's spelled in your, in your Bible. And that was a place where Jacob first heard God and first met with God in, the, in Genesis. He comes to the people of Succoth and he says, look, we are exhausted, we are tired. My 300 men here, they need food, they need refreshment. We are in pursuit of some of the enemy. There were 15,000 still left to get. We are in pursuit of them, we need some help. And they said, you haven't caught the enemy yet. Their names were Zeba and Zalmunna. I haven't seen that one on a birth certificate. Zeba and Zalmunna. Hey, Zal. <laughs> they said, we don't see you having Zeba and Zalmunna in your hands. We don't see you having them. And he said, look, and he just flips out. He just loses his cool. He said, well, God's going to give them in my hand. When he does, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to whoop you. That sounds real spiritual, doesn't it? The people he was supposed to be delivering, he's going to beat them down. He comes to Penuel, and there's a tower there, and the people won't even let him into the city. And they said, they said the same thing that the people of Succoth did. They said, we're not going to help you. We know you're exhausted. We're not going to help you. And he says, when I come back, I'm going to pull this tower down. And that's exactly what he did. He comes back, and he takes, he makes whips out of thorns, and he whips the people, the 70 elders of Succoth, and then he takes the tower of Penuel, and he pulls it down, and he kills all the men. What happened to the fact that we're supposed to be delivering the people of God, not whooping up on them? What happened to him? Well, he says it in the text. He said, we're exhausted. I tell you what, one of the things that's going to erode your walk with God is when you're tired. You'll get short-tempered. You'll get irritable. And you might even kill somebody that's really not supposed to be somebody that you kill. You might forget who the real enemy is. And you're not going to hear God very well. Sometimes... One of the most spiritual things you can do is go home and go to bed. I'm not telling you at that moment that you need to pray. I'm not telling you you need to read your Bible. I'm saying you need to just go home and go to bed. It can, it can harm your walk with God. There's a third thing we see happening to Gideon in verses 18 to 21 when he catches up to Zeba and Zalmunna. They are not princes of Midian. They are kings of Midian. And in this conversation that he has with them, something interesting takes place. He discovers something about these men. These men had killed members of his own family. And it's kind of like an aha moment. The narrator's cluing you into something as you read the story. You begin to realize that his pursuit of these men, way outside the bounds of Israel probably, pursuing them all the way out, he's, he's, he's done the job. He's driven them out. He's delivered the people of Israel, but he's still pursuing these guys. And one of the things we realize is that the mission no longer is about deliverance. The mission is vengeance. And he tells his oldest son when he catches these guys, he's, he gives his son a sword. And he says, I want you to go and kill these men. That was, a, that was an act that somebody who was a king would do. Just to try to show how powerful he was. I don't even, I don't even need to do this. I'm going to let the weakest member of my family, I'm going to let my son do this. 
His son's scared to death. He won't do it. Zeba and Zalmunna treat him like a king. They say, hey, you're, you're the big boy. You're, you're man enough. Why don't you do it? And so that's exactly what Gideon does. He takes the sword and he kills those men. And he takes their royal garments. He takes the ornaments off the necks of their camels. And he keeps it for himself. And so not only is distraction a problem, fatigue a problem, but I see a motivation problem. Motives are a problem here. It's no longer about the mission of God. Somewhere along the way, the mission of God has gotten submerged to his own purposes and motives. And and that becomes more clear when we come to that passage we just read in, in verse 22. It becomes really clear that that he's talking the talk. This is all about God, he says. God is the king. You, I can't be the king. He's your king. He's the only one that's going to rule you. And then he turns around and says, well, by the way, if you got any spare gold around, can you lay it on me? And he goes on, the Bible describes, he gets married. He has multiple wives. That's something that kings did. They weren't supposed to, but they had multiple wives, has 70 wives, even has kids by women that aren't his wives. One of them is named Abimelech, which means my daddy is a king. And he named him Abimelech. So Gideon's heart is completely shifted. He is no longer walking with God. He's talking like he's walking with God, but he's not walking with God anymore. In verse 22, when it says, uh, rule over us, the people said, both you and your son and your grandson, for you have delivered us. He should have said right there, stop everything. I didn't deliver anyone. God did this. But he doesn't say that, does he? He declined the title king, but he took the job anyway. Instead of leading people to God, he wound up leading them away from God. Putting himself in the middle, saying, you want to hear from God? I've heard from God. You want to hear from God? I did it once with fleeces. Now I've got this ephod here, and I've got you meme and thumim of myself, and it's do it yourself, hear from God, and I'm the one that can be your intermediary between you and God when you have a decision to make. He just sort of sets up his own religious operation. And what's really fascinating about this is you read through chapter 8, is that God let these things happen. He never says a word. The narrator is absolutely silent. The problem goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 6 when the prophet came and was speaking to the people who were crying out to God because of the oppression of the Midianites. And the prophet said, here's the problem. God is speaking You have not obeyed my voice. And if there's something that's right at the middle or right at the heart of walking with God, it is hearing, recognizing, and obeying his voice. When the kids were smaller, younger, we used to go hiking periodically, day hikes. We tent camped a couple times. That was not, that was a disaster. I don't recommend it. But I love day hikes, and we would, there are little books you can get on Arkansas trails and that sort of thing. I can recommend them to you, and all kinds of hikes, little simple hikes for, with little kids, and all the way up to big difficult hikes for big kids, sometimes too difficult for big kids. And this is my walking stick. One of the things I enjoyed about our hikes is the time that I would have with my children. The conversations we would have were always memorable. We still talk about some of the things that happened on those 
on those hikes and on those walks together. A lot of funny things took place. Um, a lot of beautiful things that we saw in North Arkansas and the Ozarks. Uh, places we took pictures of. People say, wow, uh, that's really cool. How do you get there? And I said, you don't want to know. You know, it's like two miles downhill, two miles uphill. And the trail's not marked. You just got to know where to turn. And, um, and so we would walk together. You know, the Bible describes the relationship between you and God like that, like a walk. And so I want to I talk to you about three aspects of your walk with God. Um, three aspects of your walk with God. Now, as a church in North America, we talk a lot about the cross, and well, we should. The cross is the center and the heart of the gospel. That was the moment of deliverance for us from our sins and from the penalty of those sins. From the power of death, Jesus Christ truly victorious over sin and death and the cross. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, he does for you what you cannot do for yourself. He takes away all your sins. He gives you as a gift his own righteousness, and you are standing now before the Father. The thing that we don't talk about very often is that that there's a life that follows the cross. We should talk about the cross, but dear ones, what we have not talked about enough is what the life is after you have trusted Christ. There's a life. He He didn't suffer and die on the cross and come and give his teaching about how to walk with God so that you and I could then get saved and sit down and wait for heaven. It's more than just getting saved. So I want to talk about this new life in three ways. Number one, it is a walk with my king. This new life is a walk with my king. God's original purpose is that he would rule over his people. When you go back to Exodus, if you read it carefully, what's described there when you get through all the language about the tabernacle and the design of the tabernacle is the whole point of the tabernacle system and the sacrifices and the symbolism that's there is ultimately this tabernacle would sit in the middle of the camp surrounded by all 12 tribes and God was going to come and dwell in that tabernacle. The whole point of it is so that God would dwell among his people. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6 and 7, this is why when the people began asking for a king and God allowed them to have a king, his name was Saul. In 1 Samuel 8, verse 6, it says, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. Now look at this. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. See, God's intent was always that he would rule his people through a direct relationship. Not with intermediaries, not with priests and prophets and kings and judges but through a dynamic and personal and intimate relationship between the father and his child. Even during the Exodus, God wanted this. When you go back and you look at what he says about their tabernacle, you get through the whole system and all the description and the details and the symbols that are there. You come to Leviticus 26, verse 11, and he says, I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. 
Now, what's he say he's going to do? I will what? I will walk among you. So do you hear something in the heart of God? It wasn't just to deliver the people from their, their oppression, to deliver people from their slavery, to deliver people from their sin, to deliver people at the cross. It was deliverance from to something else. And that something else is a relationship with God. And he comes into our life not as a helper, not as a co-pilot, not as an advisor when you have a bad day. He comes into your life and into my life as a king. As a king. Jesus' first message was the same message that John the Baptist preached. Repent for what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Not a place that's a democratic uh, polity, kind of a spiritual organization where we all get to vote on what we're going to do for Jesus. He is the king. He is the master. He is the Lord. And the decisions are his. The directions are his. How it's done, it's his. Every detail is his. So God is serious about you and I having access to him. This is more than merely having a relationship with him. Now technically, I have a relationship with my wife. She's my wife. Um, I'm her husband. I have children. I have three sons and three daughters. They are my sons and my daughters. They will always be my sons and daughters. I cannot fix that. I cannot change that. They can't either. As bad as they might want to sometimes. And that is our relationship. And when you trust Jesus, you become a son of God. You become a, a daughter of God. That relationship is forever settled. The Bible says that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but will have everlasting life. Jesus said everlasting life is knowing God and his son whom he has sent. And it's everlasting. If it stops, it's not everlasting, is it? And so the relationship never changes. But there's more than just the relationship that God wants from you right now. He doesn't want just a relationship. He wants fellowship. He wants you to abide in him. He wants you to have communion with him. And for simplicity's sake, we're calling that a walk. And that's what I mean by a walk, is that relationship that, that, that is more than just being a son, it is walking with him as your father, that communion, that fellowship with him. Jesus died to give you the same access to the father that he had while he was here on earth. And you say, well, pastor, are you just talking about a quiet time, a time where I go in the morning and I just spend time alone with God? Well, sure, that's part of it. That surely ought to be communion with God. I hope that's what that is for you. And not just a time where you read through your Bible, you check it off, close it up, and I go off on my day, not really having met with God, not really having talked with God. But, but Jesus had that. Jesus got alone with the Father. Jesus started his day that way. He started well before daylight. He also prayed all night. He prayed it. Whenever he had this need, he would go and be alone with the Father because he wanted that fellowship with his Father. And that's what he'll create in you and me, is a desire to be alone with him, a desire to know him. But listen to me. When I get up from that time, whether it's in the morning or at night or whenever, when I get up from that time, I'm not leaving my fellowship with God. I'm not leaving communion with God. Dear one, that goes right with you. It goes right with you. It goes right through your day. That peace that you have when you're alone with God in the morning, that's supposed to go with you through your day. 
Why? He doesn't go anywhere. He didn't stay by your chair that morning and you went out to your day by yourself. He goes with you. Our access does not end when we get up. Now, how do I know that? Because the Apostle Paul, he teaches in Corinthians that your body is a temple of what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. You are now the tabernacle where God dwells. And so he is with you. The God who spoke everything into existence. The same Jesus who died on the cross and who in his own existence had no beginning and no end. The same Jesus who spoke and demons trembled and left. The same Jesus who spoke and healed the sick. The same Jesus who taught the truth and possesses all wisdom, everything we need to live for God, to follow God. All of that is possessed through the Holy Spirit inside of you, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it is a walk with a king. Number two, it is a walk where my king speaks to me. It is a walk where my king speaks to me. Now we have talked earlier this year about the different ways that God speaks. We could categorize, and there's many different ways he does that in the scripture. One of my favorites is when he spoke through a donkey. I identify with that. People are all about self-identifying these days. I self-identify with that donkey. It's encouraging to me. And so he speaks in different ways. But we saw when we studied experiencing God together this past spring that God speaks, most of the ways he speaks can fall into four categories. Remember that? He speaks through his word. He speaks through the word. He speaks through prayer. He speaks through circumstances. Typically, he confirms things through circumstances. Doesn't necessarily speak through them. He speaks through godly counselors parts of the church and typically they also can confirm what we're hearing from God and so we see those four things here's the thing I want you to understand he speaks my walk with God is one in where he speaks in John 16 verse 12 how does this happen well the the Holy Spirit's the key to hearing his voice John 16 verse 12 I still have many things to say to you Jesus said I have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now however when he the spirit of truth has come he will guide you into all truth. This isn't kind of a namby-pamby kind of a guidance either. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And thirdly, it is a walk where I speak to my king. He speaks to me. I get to speak to him. The Holy Spirit gives us immediate access to the Father. In Ephesians 2.18, Paul writes, For through him we both, Jew, Jew and Gentile, we both have access, access by one Spirit to who? The Father. Access by the Spirit to the Father. What does that mean to me? That means 24-7. Not just in my time alone with God. Not just when I'm reading the Scripture. All the time, I have access to the Father. How? Through the Spirit. The implications of that are mind-blowing. One, of, one example that's found in Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore come how? Boldly, boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That throne of grace, there's a person sitting on that throne. And to come boldly, it's like when a child bursts into the room to see their mom or see their dad. And, and, and it seems to us almost rude, but 
but not to that mom or dad. Here comes that child. Un, unfettered access, unfiltered access, unhindered access. They are just free. And you have that. If you're a Christian today, you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You have that right now. You can go to the Father. Our problem is I don't believe most of us really believe that. Like Gideon, we say, no, I'm not going to call the shots. The Lord is my king. He's the one that's going to rule over me, and then we go on and live our life like we don't have a king. We don't ask him about what we're doing. We don't listen to what he has to say. Listen for what he has to say. We have hundreds of decisions, thousands of decisions we make over the course of our life. What percentage of those do we bring to the Father? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So how many decisions do you think I need to bring to the Father? We just don't believe it. In the age in which you and I live, in the place where you and I live in Western society, we have such an anti-supernatural spirit that is just dominating the church, just covering us up. It causes us not to hear things we should be hearing, not to see things we should be seeing. And we deal with most of our lives in a kind of a partial understanding of reality that, that, that's reality with a little r, just the things I can feel and see and touch and smell. Dear one, there's a whole other aspect of reality. There's the part that you see, but listen, there's a part that you don't see. The Bible's all about that, talks about that over and over again, that there's a part that you don't see, and, and more significantly, the Bible says that the part that you don't see dramatically affects the part that you do see. And unless you're understanding that there are two parts to reality, if you want reality with a big R, that if you don't have both parts of reality operating your thinking and your decision-making process, you're not dealing in the real world. And yet the world you and I live in tells us that if you are listening for a God that you cannot see, for words that you cannot hear with your ears, you're not dealing with the real world. You're out of touch. There's something wrong with you. You're superstitious. God gave you a mind. He expects you to use it. Work it out for yourself. And I just don't see that in the Scripture. I don't see that in the Scripture. The Lord Jesus says, everything I do is because the Father told me to do it. Everything I, I say, it's because the Father told me to say it. Totally dependent on the Father, obedient unto death. Every decision, every word, everything he brought in submission to the Father. He depended completely on the Father for everything. And in doing that, he was modeling for you and me the way of life beyond the cross. Philip, Acts chapter 8, is in the midst of a great movement of God in Samaria. It says the Holy Spirit spoke to him, an angel spoke to him, and then it says the Holy Spirit said, go near and overtake this chariot. He went and witnessed to a black man from Africa who went and took the gospel, probably to Ethiopia, where one of the oldest churches on the planet exists still to this day. What happened was the Holy Spirit spoke to him. He understood the Spirit was speaking, and he obeyed. Peter is sitting on a housetop at lunchtime, waiting for lunch to be ready. It says he, he's just sitting there. He's, he's praying, he's meditating, 
and, and God gives him a vision, a spiritual view of things, and God speaks to him, and ultimately it resulted in Peter going with a group of men who were about to knock on the door, and God said, there's some guys about to knock on the door. When they knock on the door, go with them. And so Peter wasn't taken by surprise. And we could go on. Acts 13, there's a group of guys, they're praying together. They're just, they're just ministering to the Lord. Have we ministered to the Lord today? They're just ministering to the Lord. They're just praying. They're just blessing God. And in the midst of that, the Spirit said, that's the word that's used there. The Spirit said, separate for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. In Acts 16, Paul is traveling across Asia Minor. And, and he wants to go to Ephesus, the third largest metropolitan area in the Roman Empire. He wants to go there. There's a lot of lost people there. And the Spirit said no. And if you go back and read that, there were several times, but the Spirit is speaking to him, guiding him, directing him. We just don't believe he does that anymore. Why does he do that? Part of, your, part of your journey, part of your growth as a woman of God, as a man of God, is learning to recognize God's voice and to be obedient to his prompting and his leading in your life. He did not send his Holy Spirit just to be a presence in your life. He sent him there, he sent him there so that he might rule your life, that he might guide your life, that he might direct your life so that you might be useful to him in the grand mission and plan that he has for the world around you. Every single Christian here, he is in you for that reason, not there just so that you can get through a bad day. He has spoken in my life. He has told me about children that were not yet born, that were going to be born. I've caught my children in more trouble than they cared to admit because God told me what they were doing. You thought just mothers had that ability? I remember one time my boys were getting ready to hop in the car and they were supposed to go to a friend's house. And as they were going to the car, I had immediately a sense that there was great danger awaiting them in that car. I, it was visual. And I'm not going to go into that right now, but it was clear. And I just looked at them and I said, look, you need to pay attention to what you're doing on the road. Ten minutes later, I got a phone call. They were in a wreck. When I first came here, I met Dustin Clegg. He's one of the first guys that I met here. He was chairman of the deacons before he came onto our staff. And I watched him. I watched when he spoke how people responded to him. I watched his ministry in the Sunday school class. And uh, before you even called me to be your pastor, I turned to my wife one afternoon after I got home. She said, how was it? Everything's good. Well, let me tell you about this guy named Dustin Clegg. I think God may be calling him to ministry. About a month later, Dustin, it was early May 2013, Dustin comes to me and says, Brother Don, sometime I want to talk to you. I think I may be called to ministry. And I said, tell me something you don't, that I don't already know. We were in a service here one Sunday night, and, and we were ordaining Chanson Newborn and his wife to go and start a new church in, in Forest City, Arkansas, one of the first African-American church plants ever by a Southern Baptist church in the Delta. And in that particular night up in the balcony right up there, Todd Mayno was sitting. 
He was pastor of another church here in the Delta at the time. He comes downstairs. He's got tears in his eye. He says, you don't know how much this blessed me tonight. And as I'm listening to him and he's talking to me, God said, you know that, and he didn't say it this way. You understand that. But altogether, I realized in that moment we had a vacancy for a pastor of families and children in our church. And God said, ask him to go to lunch. And look, we understand that James chapter 4, verse 8, the Bible says, and there's so much in this passage beyond verse 8, but I, let's just look at verse 8 for one moment, and then I'm going to bring this to a close. We're going to land. James chapter 4, verse 8, the Bible says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, we get the draw near to God part, don't we? And that's a promise. That if you and I will do whatever it takes to draw near to God, the Bible says he will draw near to us. And we understand that I want to draw near to God. I want, I want him to hear my petitions. I want him to hear my intercessions. I want him to hear about my needs. I want to unburden my heart before him. I want to pour out my heart to God. But has it ever occurred to you that the Bible also says he wants to draw near to you? That maybe instead of you just pouring your heart out, out to him, he wants to pour his heart out to you. There's things he wants to say to you, things he wants you to know about, not after the fact, but before it happens. Two weeks ago, Saturday night, I was, I was in my study and could not sleep. I felt that God wanted me to be with him, and so I went into the study, and I stayed there, and it was past midnight as well into the Sunday morning. And my heart was burning. I felt that the message for that next morning was exactly what God wanted me to share. It was his word. But in the course of that, that prayer time, God made clear to me, spoke to me, that there were some moments of darkness that were coming. and That I needed to be prepared for those moments. And for the last two weeks, there had been several moments of darkness. And I don't have the time to, to tell you those, the stories of the specific things that took place, but believe me, the enemy was after your pastor. Last Sunday morning, when I got ready to preach, I felt bleh. You ever feel bleh? Meh? I don't want to come up here unless his word is burning, but I didn't feel the burn. I knew it was exactly what he wanted. I had peace about that. I was confident of that, but I didn't feel the burn. I was praying about that that morning. You know what the Lord said to me? He said, you trust me. You don't have to feel it always. He said, you trust me. And so I got up, trusted him. And then I told you about yesterday and today and just feeling that weight and feeling, feeling the enemy wanting to distract me from what we're talking about right here this morning. And I go into the deacon body and and, um, and they lay their hands on me, and I feel that weight lift. Now, I don't know what would have happened to me if two weeks ago I had not listened and been obedient in that moment and gone to be alone with God, and he hadn't given me a heads up and said, look, there's some moments coming here where you're just going to have to trust me, son. 
You may not hear anything for a while. You may not feel anything for a while. But when you come to those moments, I told you those moments were coming, and you just need to trust me. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He has things to say to you. He has things he wants you to know. Not always just stuff to do. Sometimes things he wants you to know about the way he thinks about you. Mighty man of valor. Things he wants you to know about his love for you. Something in the scripture he wants to deepen your understanding of and make more real to you. What's the key here? I think, I think God, in all my heart, I believe God wants to raise up a generation and win Arkansas that walks with God. That learns to walk with God. To hear his voice through his word. To hear his voice in the busiest moment of your day. And to learn to recognize his promptings, those holy nudges. And even recognize when he's speaking to you with complete thoughts. He will never violate his word when he speaks to you. Uh, what he says to you will always be consistent with his scripture. But dear one, go back and read the book of Acts. Those aren't just stories in an old book. You go talk to missionaries in the third world. You go talk to missionaries who are seeing Muslims come to Christ because Jesus spoke to them and made himself real to them before they trusted Jesus. You go to countries where they're still seeing God's power being manifest. Why? Because they don't know any better. They don't know any better except to trust God. They don't know any better except to read his word and take it exactly the way it says. And so what are we talking about? We're talking about faith. I cannot abide with God, I cannot commune with God, I cannot have fellowship with God unless I believe He is real, He is there, and He is with me. Do you believe that? I'm not talking about just saying it. Have you made a choice and said, I'm going to walk that way? I'm going to walk because I know He's real, and I'm going to trust that He's real. I'm going to walk knowing that He is guiding me and that He is my King. He's not just a, a sidekick, but He's my king, my master, my lord. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. The worst thing that could happen to me, I'm going to turn to him and say, God, I don't understand why this happened, but I trust you. I trust you. This morning, I want to give you the opportunity to begin a walk with God, maybe for the very first time. If you've never put your faith in Christ to save you from your sins, that I'm offering that invitation now. In the authority of God's word, he has said that if you will trust his sacrifice for you on the cross, that all of your sins will be carried away and covered and hidden from the sight of God. And that when you trust Christ, he will give you a new life. And that new life is this walk with the king that we have been discussing this morning. Do you want to do that? This morning when we stand and sing publicly, I want to encourage you to come out of the balcony or, or down here and come take one of these pastors by the hand. Say, I want to trust Christ. I want to be saved. I want that new life. And they will talk with you. They'll answer your questions. They'll share scripture with you so that you can understand looking at God's word, what he has said, 
how a person begins this new life. Would you come? Don't worry about what anybody else will say or think. Don't worry about the time. We're talking about eternity. Come. Come. Forget everybody else. Forget everything else. Come. And then brother or sister, you are my family in Christ, but are you walking with the king? Is he so real to you that if everything was taken away from you, you know that you still have him? And he is your life. And you've discovered that if I have him, I have everything I need in life. I want to invite you to make that discovery. There's way too many Christians that talk the walk but aren't experiencing the walk with the king.